Well, good evening. Today is, um, is Palm Sunday, and uh, uh, it, it's called that because it's uh, remembering the day uh, when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem and was acclaimed uh, by crowds who waved palm branches as he came into the city. And both he and those who were waving branches, were, uh, they'd chosen their actions very carefully. Jesus rode in on a donkey. He, uh, he chose it. He said to his followers, go over there, let's go over there, donkey. I want to ride that into Jerusalem. And he did that to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah uh, 9, uh, 9 um, chapter 9, verse 9, that said, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. So this is Jesus saying, I've come, I'm your king. I'm the one who's going to do what that prophecy says. I'm going to bring you salvation. And their response to that was equally intentional. They were like, yes, he's coming. This is the king. He's going to bring us salvation. They were occupied and oppressed by the Roman Empire. And so when they read the word salvation in their scriptures, in prophecies, uh, like Zechariah's, what they thought was salvation means he's going to kick the Romans out. And so they sung, uh, they sang from Psalm 118, uh, which is a psalm which talks about God sweeping his enemies away uh, by his outstretched arm. And they, sat, they shouted, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save now. And they waved palm branches. And the reason they waved palm branches is because that's what crowds had done about 200 years before when a man named Judas Maccabeus had come into the city and set the people free from another foreign ruler. So it wasn't just that palms were nearby. It was that palms meant we're going to be saved. Enemies are going to be kicked out. This is a great time for us. But within days, they had gone from wanting to crown Jesus to shouting for him to be crucified. What happened to change their mind? What happened between the Sunday and the Friday when everything in their their, their attitude towards him changed? What happened was that they had a song that they were singing about the victory of God, but it turned out that Jesus was singing a different song. He had a different plan of salvation. It was a song that they did not understand. And we're going to look at that song this evening. We're going to look at what Jesus came to Jerusalem to do, what was on his mind. And it's in um, the prophet Isaiah. It's in this series of songs called the Songs of the Servant King. And when you think about what happens with Palm Sunday and then the week uh, follows leading up to Easter, It really matches uh, how this song starts with acclamation of Jesus and then confusion and people not really liking what's going on and then the agony of Good Friday and then the victory that Jesus won for us. And it shows us how Jesus became our substitute to save us from a fate that was far worse than Roman occupation or whatever you would consider its modern equivalent to be. And this song invites you to join in a new crowd who sing, Hosanna, Lord, save now. He's going to read it. It starts in Isaiah 52 and goes into 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, So shall he sprinkle many nations. 
Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why don't we pray together that we would work, we we would hear this song that Jesus is singing tonight. Lord, we just uh, confess to you that our ears uh, so often are blocked to what you're saying. Uh, We're so often out of tune uh, with you in our bodies, Lord God, in ourselves. That's often the case. But Holy Spirit, we believe that you can speak to us now, that you can cause us to hear this song being sung and believe that it's for us. Oh God, would you give us ears to hear tonight? Please be amongst us. Give us the grace we need to hear what you're saying and to respond to you in faith. Amen. So this song is about the servant. We're going to look at him uh, in detail later on. Uh, But it also has a lot to say about us. It has a lot to say about what we are like. And Isaiah talks about the things that are wrong with us. And he does so in a whole bunch of different perspectives. And he starts with the impact that living in this world has on us. He talks about us having griefs and sorrows that we carry around with us. People do things to us uh, directly and indirectly, accidentally and on purpose that harm us. 
It starts with our parents, even uh, the best parents that anyone here could have still get things wrong, still do things uh, that damage us. And then the other people that we meet through this life uh, in our family, uh, when we go to school, maybe if we go to work or we study or wherever we live, there's just people around us uh, who just do things that, that aren't good for us. Unless directly, but, but still significantly, uh, we have, you know, there are governments and there are businesses and there are culture makers and they make decisions and they do things or they fail to do things. And the consequences of that is that it's bad for us. Everywhere we go, there are people who hurt us, whether through intentional wickedness or just accidental selfishness, as it were. We carry the memories of these things as sadness or bitterness. And we try to live whilst, whilst being crippled, really, by the consequences of these things that these other people do. Isaiah highlights that we're in need of healing. We're not at peace. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, we have been damaged. We feel fractured. Uh, we feel incomplete. We feel anxious. Uh, these things are the opposite of peacefulness. These things, when we feel them, are, are, are evidence that we're not at peace. Because peace is wholeness. It's security. Uh, it's harmony. It's satisfaction. And most of the time, we don't experience that. And that's why uh, we will often trade a lot for the hope of that. We'll say, we'll do anything for a moment's peace or for a week's peace or just to have some peace for a while. We think, if I could just feel that way, it would be so good because most of the time we don't. But Isaiah then goes deeper than these external things and their impact on us. And he says, actually, wherever you go looking for peace, uh, you're going to not find it because the trouble is wherever you go, you're there. He reminds us what a burden we are to ourselves. As much as we would just like to blame others for what's wrong with us, we are guilty too. Again and again and again, he uses words of accusation against us. When you read through the song, you might have picked him up. He talks about transgressions and then iniquities. He says that we've gone astray. He says that we've turned to our own way. And then he says iniquity again. And then he says transgression again. And then he mixes it up by saying guilt. But then he says iniquities again and transgressors again. And then sin and transgressors again. And all these different words are meant to give us a sense of the variety of ways in which we sin. He talks about how we've gone astray how we got lost. We didn't quite realise what we were doing and, until it was too late. You know, the, the policeman says to us, well, do you know what speed you were driving at? And we say, no, I, I honestly don't. But it turns out we were way over the limit. And we want to think of these things as innocent mistakes. Oh, it just happens. But that's actually far too optimistic because we've got to ask the question, why do these things happen? Why do we harm people even when we don't mean to? And the answer is because there's no area of your life that is immune from sin. You were born with it. It was in you and you do it without thinking. It's, it's like a, a disease which we all carry and we pass on fresh infections of it to one another. Even if 
we had been brought up in perfect circumstances and were surrounded by perfect people, we would still sin. And often, we actually love it. Sometimes it's by accident, but sometimes it's completely on purpose. And again, we're asked the question, do you know what speed we were doing? And we answer, oh yeah, because I had places to go. I wanted to get there and I didn't care who was in my way. For power or for relief or for status or for fun or whatever reason is, we do things that we know are wrong. We turn to our own way. We reject God. We don't care about the consequences for others. Some people revel in their wickedness. Some people find ways of explaining it away without denying it. Others try to hide it. All of us do it. Now you might say, well, this is a pretty bleak picture of us. I'm sure there's some good around, haven't you noticed? And of course there is. There are good things. There are loads of good things that we're capable of because we were made by a good God. We were made in his image to be like him. That, that's the design that we were made in and made with. And he's the source of all life and all goodness. And he made us to be like him. But sin is at work in us, in all of us. And it takes what God's made, which is good, and it twists it. And it compromises it and it corrupts it. And, and we work with it in this. This is the strange thing about it. It's like, a, it's like cancerous growths that disfigure and destroy us, but which we keep feeding and encouraging. It's like an occupying enemy who we collaborate with. And we're simultaneously polluted and addicted. We are victims and criminals. The Bible just brings us all together in one word and says we are sinners. Now, how we feel about this sinful nature will vary uh, depending on personality and also on culture. Some of us will experience this as guilt. We, we know it's wrong and it's in there. And we're just afraid that at suddenly at some moment we're going to be found out. Suddenly one day there'll be a knock on the door. So it says, I know what you did. In other cultures, we experience this as shame. We kind of want to just stay away from it, we want to hide from it, and we, we're desperate to be respected instead and known as a good person. And in other cultures, again, we experience this as weakness, and we just feel we're powerless to change. And, and there's another authority that's mightier than us, and we can't, we can't help it. All of these things are part of the human condition. And this is why all of us hurt one another as well as ourselves. And that would be bad enough news in and of itself. But there's actually worse news. Because of far greater importance, even than how we treat one another, which is really important. But what this means for how we relate to God is even more significant. God who made us. God who's the giver of life. God who is the lover of all those people who we hurt including ourselves. Because he loves so strongly, so deeply, so truly, he hates sin. It makes him angry. How could he not? If he loves someone, how could he not be angry when he saw them being hurt by someone else? 
And often people say, oh, I don't think God can be loving and God can be angry. And they basically just haven't thought it through. What they really mean is uh, they've drawn a line at which they think it's okay for God not to be angry about something, typically around themselves and people who they like. And then outside of that line, they're like, yeah, I mean, God could obviously be angry with those things. But actually, if you love someone and they're being abused by someone else, you should be angry that that's happening. And what if that person who's abusing someone you love mocks you as they do it? This is what we do to God every day. Now we've learned to live with our sin. We're used to it. It doesn't have a shock factor. We find ways to explain it away and we hope that that will deal with it. But God is purer than we are. He is holier. He is far more loving. And he cannot abide evil. It's not like a weakness in him. It's not like an allergy or something where he's like, oh, no, I can't go anywhere near that. It's because he's so strong. It's because he's so good. It's because he's so glorious that he hates and abhors sin. What does this mean for us as people who sin every day? In our relationships with one another, uh, we tend to hope that you know, forgiveness will come along uh, by someone saying sorry um, or an excuse being made that kind of explains why it happened or just time being a healer or you know, uh, we'll do some good things to make up for what we did, which we shouldn't have done. You know, hopefully something will happen that will make people forget about it. But none of that can work with us and God. Because if he were to treat us this way, he'd have to treat everyone this way, and then evil could operate with impunity. There would be no threat of restraint or answer. God would be like an indulgent parent who never says no and just lets his children terrorize each other and murder one another, and he just says, Well, you know, kids will be kids. The universe would have no justice if God wasn't angry at sin. Sin must be dealt with. Its consequences must be answered. And they are. Through death, through judgment, through punishment, and with hell. This truth about reality and what matters most is why Jesus and the crowds on Palm Sunday were so out of tune with each other and why the witnesses in the servant song are just silenced when they see him. Because we think other things are our biggest issues. Again, we're really used to sin. So you're like, oh, you're a sinner. I've got, I mean, you know, I don't like to call it that, but I guess I am because that happens to me all the time. But whoa, here's this big deal. It's a new thing. This is really important. And so at the time of Jesus, it was the Roman occupation. That's where everyone there was like, this is the big deal going on. And you might, you know, you can take your pick of what's the important thing happening right now. It might be for you, Brexit uh, or independence or, or climate change or climate change, which are all really, really important things. Or it might be something that's happening more personal to you, more specific to you. And so you're thinking, well, this is the most important issue in my life right now. And then you go onto the news or into social media or whatever, and there are so many people saying that so many things are the most important thing in the world right now. And however important they really are, Jesus rides into town on a donkey with another agenda. 
Because however you change those situations, even if all of them are resolved in the way that would be best for all of us, human beings will still be sinful rebels against a holy God with the inescapable prospect of death and hell before us. None of those other things can change that. So let's see what happens when God sends his servant to deal with that. He begins the song heralding his servant's success. He says, my servant's going to act wisely. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be exalted. But actually, what immediately happens in the song is like what happened after Palm Sunday. The crowds are just like, what? What is, what is that? It's just like dumb silence, blank stares. And there's a sense of isolation about this servant all the way through the song. Now he's described as being born like us, growing up like us, dying like all of us will as well. And yet he is different to us. He is isolated from us. He is not attractive. People aren't drawn to him. Isaiah says he had no formal majesty that we should desire him. Instead, they are repulsed. He was despised. He was rejected by men. He's described as growing up like a root out of dry ground. He is a weed in the wasteland. He is ignored at best, trampled on at worst. And in fact, Isaiah takes us to far worse than being trampled on. A scene of horror follows all the way through the song. Isaiah says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He was despised and stricken and smitten and afflicted and pierced and crushed and chastised and whipped and oppressed and afflicted and slaughtered and oppressed and cut off from the, out of the land of the living and stricken and put to grief and in anguish of soul and he poured out his soul to death. Isaiah wrote this song centuries before Jesus was crucified. He didn't know how it was going to be fulfilled. But Jesus and all the New Testament writers say that this song is about him. Jesus and the others, they quote it. They say it's about him. And so when we hear this song, they want us to hear also the sound of punches being rained down on Jesus' face. They want us to hear whips tearing his flesh and shredding his nerves. They want us to hear hammers, uh, nails being hammered through his arms and his legs. They want us to hear the gasps of his agonized breathing as he suffocated on the cross. They want us to see the bruises on his face. They want us to see the blood running down from his wounds. His body trembling in shock and collapsing in exhaustion. The shame of his nakedness exposed to a mocking crowd. And they want us to realize that all these things are just part of him experiencing from God's hand what we deserve. Smitten by God, Isaiah says, the Lord has laid on him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The horror of Isaiah 53 and the horror of the crucifixion match each other. And they are more than a match for our sin. 
See, Isaiah has shown us how sinful we are, how rebellious we are. And he has also shown us the horror that Jesus went through on the cross. But what I did is I kind of separated the two things. I wanted just to stare at both of them uh, in turn so that we could see them each for what they are and be confronted by them. But Isaiah binds them together so tightly all the way through this song. Look at how he, the servant, and we are related. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the sins of many. This is a song of substitution of a great exchange. Again and again, we're told that the consequences of our sinful actions were taken from us by him and put on him. He carried what we had been carrying. His back took our beating. My sins were put on his shoulders. When he was being punished, I was being punished. In the Old Testament, When people did things that they knew were wrong, they went to God and they they gave an animal sacrifice in their place, which was them saying, would you punish that animal instead of me for what I've done wrong? A substitution was made. Isaiah uses that very phrase here. He talks about an offering for guilt. But an animal's life and death could never, never deal with the scale of our sin, never deal with the scale of our problems. But with the death of Jesus, a single sacrifice is made that is of such power and such purity and such value that any and all who trust in it can have all their sins forgiven and dealt with by it alone. Not simply removed from them and taken somewhere else. They're still there. Someone might find them. No, they are destroyed on Christ. God utterly deals with them. If he substitutes for you, all your sin is taken onto his shoulders on the cross and destroyed. And Jesus cries out, it is finished. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Can God be loving and the universe be just? Yes, through the cross. Can sinners like us be freed from our guilt and our shame and our fear and be welcomed by God? Yes, through the cross. Are you wondering if God loves you tonight? He suffered and died for you that you could be reconciled to him. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice to pay for our sins. You know that you've done wrong? Well, see where God declared that it was wrong and punished it. You're ashamed of what you've done? Well, see where Jesus was humiliated on your behalf. You feel weak? Well, look where Jesus 
took on sin and overpowered it by his perfect obedience even unto death. See all of these things and know, believe that Jesus did that for you. And that he offers all of this, this salvation to you today. Now that would be enough. But God has dealt with all our sin, cleared all our debts. And he's like, wow, great, I'm back to neutral again. That's amazing. But that is not the full extent of what Jesus does. Because his death is followed by resurrection. He makes all things new. The song talks about him being buried, but then seeing his many descendants, a crowd of countless millions who can now come close to God. And God says of him, the righteous one, my servant shall make many to be accounted righteous. Righteous is about being in a right relationship with God. Yes, it's about having your sins forgiven, but it's about so much more than that as well. It's about being at peace with him, about having no barrier between you and him. It's about being loved by him, about being at one with him. In other words, it's like being like Jesus. And this is what Jesus does for us. He gives us his righteousness, his right relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we sang about earlier uh, in that song. Uh, we sang, be of sin, uh, the double cure, um, cleanse from wrath and make me pure. It's both of those things. He took away everything that stops you from knowing God. Everything that God is angry about in your life. And he gives you all of his goodness. A gift that will last for all eternity. So Isaiah says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That is the church. All who put their faith in him. They will gather to him, loving him and being loved forever in a place where there is no sin. And he will rule over us at the right hand of God, having fulfilled the plan that they made between them before the universe began. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted up, high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Hosanna, Lord, save now. This is the song that Jesus sung as he came into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is the song he wants you to sing. So how do we respond to it? I just want to say three things briefly. The first is this. Take your sin seriously. We live in a culture that um, doesn't take sin seriously. Uh, it does a number of different things instead. Uh, it, it might hide sin. Uh, it might say, no, no, um, uh, I didn't do that. That wasn't me. Uh, or that wasn't me. I didn't speak in a way that I would want to be uh, known as. I'm a different person now. I'm hiding uh, my sin. You might pretend that it's not sin. It's like, no, no, that's a great thing. Uh, you, you're saying it's bad. Actually, it's really good because it's what I'm like. Well, Christians don't need to do anything like that. They can say, yeah, that is, I am like that. That is me. In fact, I'm probably worse than that because I can be self-deceived. The thing is, you can do that when you're a Christian because your sin isn't the final word. 
People can accuse you and you can say, actually, it's probably worse than that. But the fact of the matter is, someone's been accused and punished in my place. So I could have done the worst thing ever and I'd still be forgiven because the love of God has been expressed through Christ on the cross. And so we can hate sin for the evil that it is, for how it perverts us, for the pain it causes others, for its deserved punishment by God. We We can absolutely face up to that. We don't have to pretend because we give our sins to Jesus. We confess them. We don't make excuses for them. We just say, God, I did this. And here's why I did this, which makes it even worse. I'm sorry. And then we repent. We turn away. And Jesus takes the sin off our backs and puts it on his own. And it is dealt with. Second thing we must do is to see the cross as the center point of history, the most important thing. It's more important than anything going on in our lives. It's more important than, than us. Our, our lives, we often like, I want to be known. Don't do that. Make Jesus known. Make his cross known. Boast in his cross. Rejoice in his cross. Everything else, whatever anything else is happening, this is the most significant thing. And we do this, we get it in our right uh, place, in our right mind, day after day, by, by singing about it, by praising God for it, by shouting Hosanna, by eating and drinking at this table, which we're going to do in just a few moments, that reminds us, he gave his body for me. He poured out his blood for me. I've been made righteous through him. Everything else we do and care about must flow from this. And the final thing I want to encourage you to do is to understand your life through the cross. If what we have looked at tonight is true, then God doesn't owe us anything, does he? If he has done this, there is... There is no debt on his side of our relationship. We're so often quick to think about what we don't have uh, or what's happened to us that didn't happen to someone else and uh, why we don't have this, why they do have that uh, or, or whatever that kind of thing is. And when we start to think about this, we start to think about, oh, what's fair? Oh, that person's had that. I haven't had that. And this thing in us wants to say, it's not fair. Why has God treated us this way? And the cross just puts a stop to that. Because the cross says, the thing that you did deserve is not going to happen to you. It's happened to Jesus instead. And the thing that you didn't deserve, the righteousness of God has been given to you. And this helps us to see ourselves and see God as we should.